It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One of the first things you learn as a young reporter is that the product... The thing you're pitching to editors and that they're selling on to readers, the basic currency of the trade, isn't news or articles, it's stories. What's the story? That's the question that drives the newsroom, the motive that animates Fleet Street. Not that there are any newspapers on the actual Fleet Street anymore. Then, when you start writing about politics and meeting the people who craft campaigns and advise candidates, you learn that the name of their game is narrative. Yes, it's important to have policies and answers to tricky questions, but the winning side in an election is most often the one that can narrate the national situation in a way that makes their candidate the hero of a morality tale, the fixer, the redeemer, the father of the nation or mother, the champion of the underdog. Successful politicians are storytellers and winning campaigns have a simple narrative arc. Effective leaders stand out as characters. We might not like it. It might not be the best way to run a democracy, but it's also human nature, a phenomenon with deep evolutionary and psychological roots. I'm Raphael Baer, by the way. This is Politics on the Couch. And this week, I'm talking about storytelling, narrative, conflict, truth, art, and the relationship between them with the perfect guest. The man who can whip up a theatrical cliffhanger out of parliamentary procedure. Whip? Do you see what I did there? Yeah, I'm talking about playwright James Graham. Like many fans, I was first alerted to James's immense talent by This House, his 2012 play about the doomed efforts by Labour Party managers to sustain James Callaghan's minority government through the hung parliament of the late 1970s. But it was about much more than that. It's the backstory to the fateful 1979 general election that propelled Margaret Thatcher to Downing Street. It's about a pivot point in history. It's what James Graham does. He dramatises the epic by way of the personal. He somehow surveys the sweeping horizon of events by locking us in a room with just a handful of key players. As well as this house, we talked about the uncivil war, his dramatisation of the Brexit campaign, and a bunch of other pieces for theatre and TV. 
We also touch on Sherwood, his huge hit drama about the legacy of the miners' strike in a small Nottinghamshire community. Loads more. I won't give the whole bibliography here. The common thread is something that has been on my mind a lot in recent years. The tension between storytelling as the mark of a successful politician and the duty of democratic politics to engage with complex, untidy reality that doesn't have neat endings or simple villains. I've often used the phrase political theatre in relation to Parliament. But if all Westminster's a stage and the men and women merely players, where does the artifice end and truth begin? It was a great privilege to put that and other questions to Britain's foremost dramatist of politics. The conversation started, naturally enough, with James's most recent play, Best of Enemies. It recreates the televised debates between Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley Jr. at Republican and Democratic conventions during the 1968 US presidential election campaign. The play uses that setting as a microcosm to explore the origins of today's culture wars. It's about, among other things, the relationship between a political ideal and a human being who wants to embody that ideal. It's about the power of personality over rationality in winning an argument. The discovery by American media that the way to reach a bigger audience is to turn politics into confrontation and confrontation into entertainment. Arguably, that wasn't a great development for civil discourse. It also has obvious resonance for our times. It's a reminder that our times are not uniquely febrile and turbulent. And that's one of the things I found most appealing about Best of Enemies. In recent years, especially since 2016, you know, the year of Brexit and Trump, it's been easy to catastrophize the state of politics. It feels like one constant crisis with the foundations of civil society creaking and groaning underfoot. So there's almost a perverse kind of reassurance in recording how things must have looked to liberal Americans in the summer of 1968. Martin Luther King had been assassinated. Robert Kennedy had been assassinated. There were riots on the streets at the Democratic Convention. There was a war in Vietnam. And all the time, Soviet and American nuclear missiles were pointing at each other. The world was only ever a few harsh words or a few fat fingers away from atomic annihilation. I started by asking James if that was part of the reason for setting a play in the summer of 1968. The feeling that no matter how messy, how uncertain, how unstable things feel now, well, it's worth remembering that we've kind of been here before. Exactly. There's, there's like a comfort in that, isn't there? But it's also um, terrifying that it feels like humanity and civilizations get locked in these cycles that they can't ever seem to break or get out of. But I agree with you. I mean, in and of itself, I really enjoy finding these stories which uh, are, are, are fascinating where um, an institution like television news gets challenged or, or great personalities do something. I think stories should always work on their own terms. But yes, the fact that it's set in 1968 and the fact that I was actually writing it during uh, the pandemic in 2020 when it felt like the spirit of protest and rage was exploding again out onto the streets, whether that was Black Lives Matter or the Brexit protests. It felt, yeah, we, it felt like we were living in one of those shifts where the old world hadn't quite yet died, but the new world wasn't quite yet being born. And into that, I think the most illuminating stories are always told. Yeah, the, that the, the sort of the, the morbid symptoms uh, that seem to have actually been been prolonged for quite a long time uh, over the last few years. One, yeah. one of the interesting things about particularly the, the the Vidal Buckley that debate that makes it feel so current is that it was seems to be a moment, and what you dramatise is that moment where 
a, a set of political ideological arguments fused with a culture war. That's is almost the sort of origin story of the culture wars. Yeah. Is, is, is that a fair way of framing it? Definitely. And it, look, I'm sure it's probably more complicated than that, but that is exactly the story we wanted to tell. So this was a moment, you know, in television news, which at the, at the time was the only frame of reference that most people had to make sense of the world. Obviously, now we have Twitter and social media, which is the which is the equivalent. But you're right. So what so what the producers did was to put personalities, public intellectuals, on the television news, which never happened before. It was normally these gatekeepers who would curate the information, and it was all driven by facts and information. And then they had this radical idea to get two people um, on uh, from one from the left, one from the right, to uh, opine and to express opinions and philosophies based on their ideology. But of course, what the show what the play examines is that even though I think the intention was genuinely to try and make sense of the moment and elevate the discourse and give 15 minutes, much like, you know, the time you give on these brilliant podcasts, which, you know, you get to dig into something over the course of time. They wanted to make sense of it. The problem was it was it, these people, Gore Dal and William F. Buckley, are human beings and they have flaws and wants and objectives and needs. And it got very personal very quickly. And I think in that, as you say, is the origins to identity politics, uh, whereby Buckley was looking at Vidal and he believed his view of America, his version of America that he wanted to see based on his personality traits, his sexuality, his lack of religion, his lack of monogamous relationships or a belief in them was going to corrupt America. So it got personal and it were, and the political was the personal ever since. What also comes across very strongly is that to begin with, Buckley thinks that there's a, there's a high-minded way of doing this yeah. and he is sort of disdainful of the idea that you can game it for theatrical effect. Uh, and, and there's there's something almost paradoxical about a play that seems to dramatise, you know, in, in a tragic way, the idea that actually character and personality and drama win out over argument and philosophy and politics because he's sort of... Crudely speaking, Vidal kind of wins the first round yeah. by just having, you know, understanding the idiom and the medium so much better. Is that a tension you feel sometimes between, you know, you are literally in the business of, of dramatizing politics uh, around personalities and character? And then contained in that is this sort of an argument that if only it were less about personality and character, <laughs> we might yeah. actually have a, have a better kind of politics. 100%. I mean, I have uh, a great existential anxiety about that because obviously nobody wants our politics which should be uh, informed by reason and rationality and logic to be completely driven by performance uh, and uh, and the, the 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 strongest characters or the most entertaining characters being the one who arrive at the top but that is unfortunately what naturally happens you know when access becomes the norm we we forget that even up until 1989 there were no television cameras in the Houses of Parliament. It was all just audio. So you could be a bit boring, but be a successful politician or a great thinker or a really successful drafter of legislation that will actually advance, uh, uh, you know, solve a problem. Now, of course, it always is about performance. And, you know, to what extent was the fall of Liz Truss? Because she was a really, really terrible performer. Like something happened when she became prime minister. She was actually quite 
interesting and enigmatic and free on her campaign trail. She became prime minister. She goes on Sunday morning talk shows. And it's like watching a toddler trying to walk. It's uncomfortable because she couldn't effectively or convincingly manifest being a human being and responding to questions and listening. And that's, of course, what Brooklyn Vidal did so well. It was, it was actually a really satisfying conversation. They listened to each other. They responded well. And they engaged in the debate. So I agree with you. I have, yeah. so, so, but that's a really interesting distinction there because, I mean, Liz Truss, in a way, had constructed an idea of herself and you know I mean the sort of the Instagram feed where she was doing sort of Margaret Thatcher cosplay literally reenacting uh Thatcher yeah. photo shoots uh, she had it's as if she had understood what the I what the sort of the a new political concept which is to make Liz Truss uh a product <laughs> and a character which is exactly what Boris Johnson did so brilliantly I mean Boris you know, is a, is a fiction, you know, Alexander Johnson is who he really is. And then Boris is this thing he created. Donald yeah. Trump is a create is, and, and so Liz Truss, you know, in a way, if you were to try and do a sort of a tragedy of Liz Truss, it would be yeah, actually that she was trying to do that kind of policy and couldn't, it was all that, which is weirdly almost too human. It's more human that she, she wanted to be less <laughs> human and just being, her being a bit human actually made the whole thing sort of implode. Maybe that's a, that's far too generous to this trust. I think, yeah, but I think, but, but also w- without being a really pretentious playwright. Please do. That's what this podcast is all about. Uh, yeah, why not? That's why I'm here. It's, all, it's the only thing I have, to be honest, so I, I will lean into it. But it's about authenticity and truth. And it's kind of a misplaced idea that art is fake or that drama is false. Because it's actually, I would say this, but it's almost sometimes the most truth, truthful thing. My favourite quote about art, I, I whacked this at the front of um, a television drama I did called Quiz, which was about the coughing major and about the narratives that were written around that story. And it's from Pablo Picasso, and he's says that art is not truth art is a lie that helps us realize truth the myth is that inauthentic uh, the drama is inauthentic it's actually really authentic and the problem with liz truss's creation was that the voters and the viewing public immediately sniffed it out as being a bad performance it was inauthentic and we have this weird culture whereby often when people stop being the leader of their party or stop being prime minister and just get to be themselves again. We go, oh, there you are. I really like that. So like, I really, you know, Gordon Brown and his, his, his ridiculous smile, when he stopped smiling and just became the curmudgeonly bank manager, you go, oh, that's quite statesmanlike and I quite like that. Ed Miliband being a nerdy podcaster is really endearing because it's authentically him. So for whatever reason, yeah. That's very interesting. I had Bizarrely, I had a conversation with someone who was Ed Miliband's director of communications when in around 2013, 2014, when I said, you know what, you need to lean into who he is. You need to have him literally at party (laughs) points walk on stage solving a Rubik's Cube and which he could do in about two minutes, then put it down and go, check me out. And they were like, don't be ridiculous. There's no way we can do that. And you're probably right. But even I remember Margaret Thatcher's last... PMQs after she had resigned. And there was a moment where she said, I'm actually enjoying this. And you thought, wow, they're even there behind the mask. You're, you're, you're you're absolutely right. But that, that point about what, what fiction and art can do to sort of bring out the, the truth, which I think the, the truth there is actually we're all human beings. And so you can't understand politics entirely on a level of, of abstract ideas or clearly defined right and wrong because human experience doesn't really account for that. The The element there is empathy, isn't it? Buckley, you know, I don't want to give too many spoilers in the play, but he, you know, he ultimately, you know, he does something appalling uh, and he knows he's done it and he knows he's sort of 
fallen down by his own standards and also in, in the terms of the sort of the rhetorical combat that he's in. Um, but it's a it's an incredibly human thing he's done. He just let the adrenaline of the combat overwhelm him. Yeah. And that empathy is something that you can do. Mm. Good art in you know creates that empathy in a way that political presentation seems to reject. Without a doubt. And also how we as as Twitter users, as voters, reject empathy as a useful weapon to make sense of the world because we prefer something more divisive. We're, we're, politics is now a, a sport whereby... Uh, I support my team and you support your team. And we have no even desire to explore the idea of empathy, of, of walking in the shoes of someone we disagree with. And you're exactly right. The real power of drama, and this has been the case for thousands of years. And actually, I could wang on to you about the fact that it was actually the drama and storytelling that came before democracy. It was the art created the conditions by which democracy could could be invented and exist. So storytelling. Please, please wang on about that. That's a really interesting point. Go on. Fine. Okay. So let's go. Let's go back to the 400s BC in Greece. And uh, you know what? What? What was the world? The world was just a series of unconnected tribes with no cohesion and no unity and no um, collective mission. And what happened is because of because of a desire to be together in a space and start telling stories, stories that make sense of the the chaos of the world and you invent gods and that makes sense of some of the irrationality of the world because there are people in the clouds being mischievous and doing things and that explains why my husband left me or why someone got killed because there has to be a reason for something so they start telling stories but that requires physical proximity so clans start getting together in one space and out of that becomes comes both the desire but the mech the instruments the mechanics for creating politics and democracy and voting so even though i do have this real genuine anxiety about my role in the world which is in a politics and a news landscape where narratives and fictions are weaponized and dangerous what's my place as a writer and how dare i contribute new narratives and new fictions to that i'm a bit more relaxed about it than that because storytelling is how we've always made sense of the world uh, whether that's as mates around a pub table going why did she leave me or whether that's george osborne going the reason for austerity is this and we can either believe it or not well yeah, exactly so the, you know that osborne example is a very good one it was when he says we didn't mend the roof when the sun was shining yeah. maxed out the credit card he had a gift for a kind of the glib metaphor that seemed to animate the imagination in a way that people said, no, I understand it. Political analysis always calls narrative and, mm. and we sort of use that so glibly that we don't tend to really focus what we're really talking about there. You know, I remember there was the story basically of the bad King Gordon who spent all the money and then you needed the new regimes come in and, and fix everything. And it, it was, it was very compelling. And you know, it's something we've talked about on the podcast before that sort of progressive or liberal left politics, however you want to sort of put the other side of that, wherever you want to frame it, kept failing to sort of thinking that they could win by saying that's a lie, as opposed to saying here's a better, more compelling story about how we can do this. 100%. So what does that need? It needs, well, you need good storytellers to do that. Storytelling, and I say this, uh, I hope, uh, immodestly, but telling a good story is hard. And I've had to learn myself what that takes in terms of that construction, in terms of characters, in terms of uh, structure, beginning, middle and ends in terms of form. And I would say that certainly, you know, on the right, they've had better storytellers for the past decade, for better or worse. And I think if you, yeah, austerity is a really good example of that. It often means that we retreat into a kind of simplicity because the simpler stories are quicker and easier to tell. It's an easier story to say that we have some debt. We need to pay this debt off 
Therefore, we need to make some cuts. If you had debt in your household, if you had a credit card bill, you wouldn't go out spending. So we need to make cuts. And everyone goes, that does make sense to me. I understand that. It's a harder story to tell, to go, guys, I know this sounds counterintuitive, but actually when, when we have a recession and when we have a huge deficit, weirdly spending more money at this time on investing in jobs and growth and infrastructure might in the long term be more profitable. That's a harder story to tell. And I'm struggling with it as well. Well, if you could just borrow enough money to buy a car, then you might be able to drive to get the better job and then you'd be earning more money. Yeah. And then you can basically it's, borrow yeah. to have a house, then you can have a family and then suddenly you're thriving. So you need to, but you need to yeah, do that, that bit. First, it's interesting also that, you know, I'm going to try and make a complicated point here and I'm not sure my brain can, can quite do it, but that you know, going back to what you were saying about the origins of storytelling feeding into democracy, part of that, there's a sort of really crude, basic evolutionary need to join the dots to make sense of the world that says, you know, so if there's lightning coming out of the sky. It must be because the sky god is angry with me. Yes, uh, yeah. If pestilence has come and ruined uh, our livelihood, it must have been because we angered uh, whatever a god it is. Um, it, it, because you don't have, you know, you, you look at the stars and you don't have a, a telescope. You see pictures there and that might, you, know, you create astrology instead of astronomy. Extrapolated into the present, it sort of explains why people like conspiracy theories uh, or very simple narratives say, look, it, you know, if this bad thing is happening, it must be because... The, the terrible politicians are in league with the terrible bankers and the terrible media to arrange things in such a way because I feel so powerless. Uh, yes. And so, you know, who's got all the power? Uh, and one of the things that artistic storytelling, good art, good novels, good plays does allows that, you know, the, the itchiness of it not being completely resolved, of the dots not all being neatly joined up into a clear picture, but actually there being, you know, contradictory emotions at the same time. You, you feel for Bill Buckley, uh, but also you despise his politics or you sort of agree with um, uh, Gore Vidal, but also you're slightly appalled by his smug, oleaginous character. Uh, and that, I think, is something that, that, that you as a dramatist, as a creator can do that feels you know, is so often absent from politics. That was a very, very long point and it wasn't even a question. What I love about what you just said is you got to the heart of what I think the human function of storytelling is, which is to make sense of something that has no meaning. You might argue that we are irrelevant beings floating on a rock in space and nothing really means anything, but that's really upsetting and dark. And so um, people like uh, Euripides and Shakespeare came along to go, look, What's really satisfying is watching human beings make a decision and then there being consequences to that decision. And it can either be good or bad, a tragedy or a comedy. But we, we really need that psychological lift as human beings. Otherwise, we'll just, we won't get out of bed every day. We need to believe. So we watch on film and on stage characters against the backdrop of a, of a society, a culture. And through that, they try and navigate things. They try to find love. They try to prevent wars. They try to get promoted and they either succeed or they don't. If you betray someone there is a there is a consequence to that because of our values because of our systems if if you are jealous you probably destroy yourself and that's what's upsetting about politics in the past 10 years the death of consequence if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery think again juvederm volux xc is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime even better this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment no maintenance required improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with juvederm volux xc 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The death of the even the, the culture of a minister doing something wrong and feeling compelled to resign out of shame, or there being a consequence to Donald Trump just going, no, I'm not going to believe the election result. I mean, there is a consequence. He was kicked out of the White House, but I mean, he's, he's, he's perpetuating his narrative. He's still marauding through American politics. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because actually, well, you know, that is the, the fundamental foundation of a moral philosophy is that your actions, you know, if they are good and bad, can can have those those consequences uh, and and in that's what religion is it's, it's the greatest story ever told and it's where we get all of what depending on which which book you choose in which civilization that's where we get our value system from because of these stories these fables someone did this this was bad you shouldn't steal someone's sheep you shouldn't sleep with someone's wife because this is what happens in this story and we go yes i get that that's how we make sense of the world so you know democracy exists because of storytelling but it also is what makes it vulnerable if you get malign storytellers. And in a world where that moral foundation isn't sort of manifest in people's lives, where the minister doesn't resign, where there is no consequence for just flouting the rules and having parties in Downing Street while people were having to attend funerals via Zoom, then the only ethic that actually dictates what happens is power and control. And that's why it it starts to degrade democracy towards something more authoritarian because what you're saying is you have to try and and this is what really happened in the Soviet Union by the end so they had a religion they had some Marxism and socialism and they had a sense of what the moral philosophy should be and it became so obviously hypocritical and so obviously degraded that people very quickly sort of understood that actually might is right in the most mm. fundamental ethical sense that someone has power over someone else and this is what what alarms me about the state of of our democracy now and particularly American democracy is that the longer we have that consequence free that or the the clear perception of, of of consequence free politics the more everyone just starts to accept well obviously that's how it is and literally yeah if you won then by definition that was a moral victory because power is the morality yes I also think something one of the reasons for the chaos that we have now is that we I think previously it's almost like everybody was in the same space and the, then the strongest storyteller got to take hold, got got to take the floor. It's like you're in a, someone stands up and you start listening to them instead. So, so Margaret Thatcher's story, when she stood up, started to be more compelling 
and easy to listen to than the story of James Callaghan and that Labour government. What's changed is there are now competing realities, competing spaces, so different stories fighting each other because of the, our frame of reference has has split. And there's good and bad reasons for that, isn't there? So, pre, so uh, the play the play you're referencing, Best of Enemies. Previously, America used to see the nation through one single lens. You had different news networks you could flick to, ABC or CBS, but essentially there was a unity of of story. What started to diverge in Buckley and Vidal and increasingly in the late 20th century when the internet came along and we all got iPhones and so we all could become our own storytellers. We could uh, decide and curate our own frame of reference. It's like cells splitting, different different spaces to tell stories emerged, which means in America right now, it's not that that, um, Donald Trump is a better, better storyteller, it's that he's left that space, gone and made his own space and people have gone over there. And so what you get is a sort of war, a civil war over reality itself. My reality is different to their reality. Those people storming the capital are living in a different reality to the people defending it. And I don't, that's what I don't know. That's how I don't understand how you ever fix this. So it's not even like Joe Biden just has to be a better storyteller. It's that people storming the capital weren't in the same theater that he was performing in. Yeah, it's what I mean. Um, Barack Obama talk, call, called it the sort of the epistemological crisis in politics. That no, you know, you can just have your own alternative yeah. set of facts and con- construct your your reality around it. I mean, this is a, a, a theme, I think, in your work, isn't it? I was looking back at Ink, uh, which I think I remember seeing in the theatre. Um, but it's a that's a very similar source of inflection point in media, isn't it? This about the, the essentially the point where Rupert Murdoch gets hold of the sun and goes, well, there's a whole set of presumptions about what Fleet Street is and what news is. And everyone agrees that that's how it is. But actually, what if it's not? What if we just literally give people what they want, which is boobs on page three uh, and, you know, and, and don't try and tell them what they ought to be reading, just lean into what they do, what they fancy and what they like. Uh, and this, I'm, the reason I'm fascinated by that is because, you know, what a lot of people would say is, well, that is also what democracy is for. I mean, you had a, a very elite proposition of what the sun mm. was, and then you had someone who come along and say, "Well, no, it's just a product. People, you know, people have a right to a newspaper that you know entertains them as well as giving them information." And I think uh, that the sort of uh, high-minded, outraged, liberal uh, opinion formers who feel that their monopoly on deciding what the rules are and what truth is has been taken away mm. from them can feel sort of righteous indignation about the the more kind of populist frame, but they struggle to explain why it's intrinsically wrong that people are just sort of choosing what they want to read. Yes, they do. And and the I, I, it, was, it was a conscious strategy in that play, given that we understand probably that the majority of theatre-goers um, in North London, where the play first premieres, are probably of a more liberal, progressive bent. And I did find it, and I hope this is, a, this is not an unethical position to take, but I did find it mischievous and satisfying to, in the first half of the play to just go, well, what, what is the sun good at? Why is it successful? What does it appeal to in human nature that means it is the most popular paper in the English-speaking world? I think that's a valid question. So you get the audience in an empathetic way, like you say, to just just take an hour and 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 think about that and look at that through the through the um the footsteps of a character like Rupert Murdoch going, "This is what I'm trying to beat. This is what I think is wrong, and this is why I'm doing it." It was quietly thrilling, I have to say, that to see in the interval people coming out and going to the bar and getting a stiff drink because they sort of were going, "I think I quite like." 
the sun now. I think I quite understand. <laughs> I think I quite understand Rupert Murdoch's um, whole thing. This is the the, the, the what the brilliance of what what theatre can do is you can induce people to sort of you know punch the air. You know when the sun overtakes the mirror. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, and also, but you and that's because that. That I, I said that the, it's the theatre's power. Unlike um, Twitter, where I'm just going to say no, I disagree with that, and I'm going to scroll upward now. Like I literally trap people in a room for an hour and say, I mean, you can leave if you want, but people will touch and share and shame you. So you're forced. You're forced into a dark space where you have to engage. Um, with something you maybe find uncomfortable. And in that, uh, nuance and paradox and contradiction comes in. All those old-fashioned stuff we used to have before social media comes into it. So that is – but I, I hope then, therefore, your responsibility as a writer is to go, I'm going to do this in the first act, but then I'm going to do this in the second act. So so the, so the consequences of uh, yeah. I mean, this comes back to something you were saying earlier that I can really identify with um, you know, about the sort of queasy feeling of, am I facilitating empathy with yeah. a bad thing in which case isn't that just like recruiting to the badness and and it, it's something that it's i mean it's different as a journalist there's a related but different tension which is does one sort of report what the government says because it's the government and people have you know, need to hear what the government says but when it's so dishonest and disreputable mm. you have to apply what previously would have been seen as an opinion a commentary on it so the government so yeah boris johnson lied today is not a traditional news intro because it's a, it's a judgment but if, if what he said just yeah. wasn't true then it's also the news that he told another lie uh, and you know that that tension between one mode which is no i i still need to be kind of high-minded and stick with my craft which is just give the facts and another which mm. is the facts are being so contested and warped that I actually have to adopt a different mode, which is activist mode and make my journalism serve what I think is the right cause. And I, that's, but then that's a trap. Now I've just you know, climbed down from the stands and I'm actually on the pitch. Uh, and I sense that you're experiencing a similar sort of dilemma as a dramatist, which is saying, you know, no, I want to empathize, but also there comes a point where yeah, I actually have a responsibility to the society that I'm dramatizing to not, yeah, was it the, the to, you know, to, to understand is to forgive, you know, that I don't necessarily want people to forgive by understanding too much. Yeah, but look, I mean, understanding something isn't the same as endorsing it. Uh, so in a play, I am trying to understand and to a less, greater or lesser extent empathize with the desire that Rupert Murdoch had to give people what they wanted. Understanding why that was so successful, why that appealed to some of the greater, but then some of the most base of human instincts, a, a desire for tits, a desire for murder and crime stories and blood and, 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 and punching down rather than punching up. When you start to give people what they want, they'll often disappoint you because what they want isn't always for the greater good. Um, that, I think, is the message of the play. But I think understanding... Um, why Murdoch behaves the way he does, or understanding the other complicated character I'd put on in a drama, which is Dominic Cummings. Mm. Understanding in the Brexit film what the Leave campaign were doing, why they were effective, and why it cut through to people is not the same as me endorsing it. I'm simply asking the audience to go on an exercise, an exercise in the modern world they often reject which is walking in the shoes of someone they disagree with simply to understand them. And then, of course, I have a moral responsibility to apply, I think, our universal basic values to that question. Um, so I show the consequences of the um, the success of the sun in the second act and how it impinged, how there was a human consequence and cost to some of their strategy of populist news. I hope in the Brexit film, 
where I get to, you know, I get the head of Remain and the head of Aleve around a pub table in a scene that never actually happened. But Benedict Cumberbatch and Rory Kinnear playing Dominic Cummings and Craig Oliver. And they both express what they're doing to each other. And so you have in a public space, hopefully Leave voters and Remain voters watching a thing. But drama's power is that you get to take people out of their ideological silos and hear different points of view in an empathetic way. It's not the same as endorsing it. And I, I did come under some stick, including from some Guardian colleagues, uh, about <laughs> the, uh, the responsibility or irresponsibility of doing a drama about Dominic Cummings. But ultimately, I just go, I don't think it's that controversial. He exists. He did a thing. It's changed all of our lives. I want to understand it. I get by get by having a, a Marvel superhero play him, there is dangerous dangers that you can mythologize and alter the perception of him by making him this genius. But I don't think that's what we did. I just asked the question. What- and you don't want to go down the route of, kind of what used to be called Soviet socialist realism, which was thinking that the function of art is to portray society as it ought to be for the general exactly. moral improvement yeah. of the masses, because that makes bad art. It makes bad journalism as well. I mean, one of the things that, that connects Inc. and uh, Uncivil War and uh, and Best of Enemies, and I think, and actually uh, Labour of Love as well, to an extent, a lot of your work is class element to this as well, which is what you described in that theatre in North London, which is the liberal left middle class fear of not actually being in touch with, in quotes, authentic working class culture, and then surrendering that to uh, conservatism and the right and the genius of actually quite elite conservative right wing operators, essentially mobilizing the, the, the argument is we actually understand these people better than you, the left who claim to represent them because we just, you know, we, we, we're more in tune with their needs. And, and the, the, the referendum, you know, both the leave campaign playing on that and then the the immediate aftermath that the sort of where the remain campaign had to look at itself and realize how badly it had got everything wrong animated that psychodrama mm. in liberal uh, psychology so well i thought it just felt like there was an awful lot of people thinking sort of damn it we are the metropolitan liberal elite i mean obviously you know 48 of the country are not metropolitan liberal elite they just voted remain but it was yeah. You know, it was too exquisitely true in a sense that it, there was a kind of a latte sipping, <laughs> eye rolling, oh God, you're all thick racist element to remain opinion that gave leave its enduring power after 2016. Without a doubt. And isn't, I, I think in terms of what, when we were discussing successful political narratives like the fiction about austerity um, being uh, both the problem and the solution, um, I, I'm bewildered and in admiration for, I think, what the most successful narrative of the 21st century is so far in politics, which is the one you described, this this idea that the right wing, are some of the most elite quarters of the right wing as well, you know, um, Aaron Banks, who owns a gold mine in South Africa, and uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, uh, the people who who fought, who identified, you know, Alexander de Feffel, Boris Johnson, that they somehow were in touch more with the pulse and the heartbeat of the of the working majority in the country and that people on the left were an elite out of touch silo of, of metropolitan smug opinion of course the, the, what makes it a successful story is there of course elements of that which is a bit true but it's not the whole truth and yet it's really it's bedded in so significantly in here, here and in america the idea that donald trump the billionaire who was given a million pounds as a kid uh, by his dad represents the feeling and the instincts of the poor more than Barack Obama or Joe Biden, simply because Barack Obama and Joe Biden are on the progressive left, is incredible. And yet it feels 
I feel it's a bit true because... Well, and I think part of the reason it, I think that we have that feeling and part of the reason it is a bit true, as I understand it, is uh, there is a was the collapse of organised labour and trade union movements, which were came from the sort of the classical left tradition, but unnecessarily identify the left with a set of intellectual left liberal ideas that came more out mm. of the university campus. And that's where the Gore Vidal, uh, I mean, in Best of Enemies, yeah, for me, some of the, the the most current relevant bits of the argument there were exactly that area where you, the sense that the new left that uh, Vidal is talking about uh, is really um, a, a capture of what it means to be authentically left by an intellectual elite which is actually quite different from blue collar democrat working class trade union left with that yes and i think in the play i can't remember whether this was actually gore vidal or me we we blend together a bit is um he talks about the move the left in the 60s the left intellectually moving away from social class as a as a as a area of contention to social justice um and that was manifested by the the image of those young students on the streets of chicago who were educated who did come from campuses and we're bringing campus language with them onto the streets it meant that buckley himself an incredibly elitist conservative right winger could plausibly capture the sentiment of the nation going these students don't represent you the people at home the workers who are struggling and will ultimately be the victim of their their war there because they don't understand you anymore and look i felt i i grew up in a red wall you keep hearing about with um in a, in a mining village which i depicted on a drama i did last year called sherwood it was a it's a north nottinghamshire town that has been very ideologically flexible it voted labor it, it recently turned tory in the last election i've i've always always known that the coalition in that town of its traditional Labour voting um, traditions was always really vulnerable because it it was all around work. It was all around unions. It was all around their sense of collectivism came from their heritage and the idea that we are unified by one single industry. When that industry disappears and the trade union movement no longer plays a significant part in the fabric of your community, what's left is a lot of conservatism. It was always a socially conservative town, even though it voted Labour because of its because of its economic policies and because of its sometimes its dependence on on those public funding, but that was always very fragile that relationship. I'm and I'm in, I'm in no way surprised and surprised that other people are surprised that Ashfield went conservative in 2019 because that was a, 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 an obvious trend that was happening over the course of 25 years. And the fact that immigration could be such a hot button issue in a lot of those communities also yeah. isn't necessarily that surprising, partly because you know when when people feel anxious and that, that their community is is fragile, the the, the the notion that there is some outside change threat that's being imposed on you yeah. is very potent. And actually going back to the labour movement, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, it actually is some of the rhetoric that you got in the early labour movement about foreign labour is very uncomfortable reading yeah, um, in, in the context of, of the current left. I mean, the interesting thing, one of the things that the labour, organised labour gave people was positions of esteem and responsibility and control that were very much local part of the, that particular structure. So if you were a shop steward, you had status, you know, you sat opposite the boss mm. uh, and you had your hierarchy of esteem uh, that was not based on London and it was not based necessarily mm. on how much you earned. And it feels to me that in the hollowing out of organised labour, 
separate from the economic consequences of that, what we've lost is available avenues to get to positions of status that aren't going down to university, going to university and going to London and then getting a job in the professions. It's something else you can do. That's so true. And, and obviously, you even see that in, um, in, in politics and the modern Labour Party, where I did a play, This House, um, which was about the 1970s hung parliament. And, uh, I loved that play, by the way. Can I just say, I, I properly, I'm, I'm not going to swear, but I, I, I very much loved that play. That's really good. I wasn't, I, I wasn't. I wasn't setting myself up for a compliment, but uh, but thank you. And um, no, but I mean, I like they're all great, but that one particularly that 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 was a fantastic piece of theatre. It was a special one for me. I really uh, only is it only is a, a proof of concept that ten years ago nobody really necessarily believed there was an audience for that kind of geeking out in a theatre. Um, doing a play about Labour whips failing to pass legislation doesn't immediately sound like a commercial proposition, but I was really pleased that it um, it had a life. But in that play, yeah. But it's a great story to interrupt because I think this is what you're going to say. There was, can I say there was a, this, this tease up, I think, the point you're about to make. The great moment where uh, at, right towards the end, there's a reference to uh, Norman Tebbit as a new type of Tory MP. And yeah, they, you don't yeah, refer to yeah, him as yeah. Tebbit, you refer to him as the constituency. But uh, that it really yeah. gets to that sense of the, there is a change of foot in the kind of who's coming in and the type of people who are coming in and who they're representing. Yeah, and of course, you know, the leader of the opposition um, at the time, Margaret Thatcher, being a, a shopkeeper's daughter. So it was changing. But the, the joy for me, simply as a writer, being able to uh, construct a place set in the halls of Westminster, but have the kind of voices that come from that working class tradition. Uh, that Because these characters, people like Walter Harrison, who came from Wakefield, and Anne Taylor, who came from Bolton, they'd all come up through the union structure. And they brought with them an experience and, frankly, a sense of humour and a voice and a view of the world that was an absolute relish for a playwright to have. And if I was writing about the Labour Party now, I just wouldn't have those voices. I wouldn't have that tone to it, which is really depressing. But you're right, what that, what that, why that was possible and why normal people, recognisably normal people, were filling the halls of Westminster at that time was because of the structures that you're talking about within working class communities that no longer exist. Just going back to Nottinghamshire and Sherwood in particular, one of the things that really sort of strikes me about that dramatization is it's set second decade of the 21st century right and it reaches back to the unresolved tensions and dramas from from the miners strike and again this i think feels to me a a theme in your work is it captures that sense that sometimes history is far away it's in the past and then sometimes it suddenly zooms right up into the present and this is what I've, I've written about this actually um uh, in my forthcoming book uh, which i would heartily encourage everyone mm. listening to this podcast to go and buy um <laughs> anyway no but it, it, i call it the sort of the concertina effect the idea that suddenly time can scrunch up and squeeze up like a concertina and things that you either thought that as as time goes on and you move forward in the present uh, into the future the past gets further away right that's logic that's what physics would sort of dictate happen. but it doesn't seem to work like that <laughs> suddenly things that are further away can suddenly suddenly become very present again uh, and that again yes. in the, it's a choice of setting best of enemies in 1968 or having literally the, the sort of the toxin of the minor strike actively marauding in 21st century nottinghamshire that, that feels to me that's a sort of a, a theme you're exploring there. Is that right? It is. Uh, I think that's well described. I, I would say, yeah. Um, everybody would probably have been aware of it in uh, in Ashfield, in my community, that those wounds were not healed. That those that the um, you know the gas bubbling under the surface at, at any point could be released if an external force did it. So the tragedy of that story is 
uh, you know, North Nottinghamshire was infinitely more split than almost any other region in the miners' strike in the 1980s. And that's why a lot of the violence happened there in these border countries. I, I could talk for hours and I won't about um, the pigeon psychologist in me knows that growing up there is the reason why I have a desire to explore different ideological points of view because growing up in these border counties. That's literally what this podcast is for. So do please carry on. <laughs> okay. So just, just my own therapy. So yeah, it's um, it's got an identity crisis, North Nottinghamshire, in that it, it feels like it, I, you know, I could almost see Yorkshire from my bedroom window, but we weren't Northern. We were the Midlands. And I wasn't allowed to be Northern and I've never been allowed to be Northern. Every time I say I am to someone from the actual North, like Liverpool or Newcastle, I get slapped down. But then when I say to someone from Birmingham and from the Midlands, they go, no, you're not in Northern. So nobody basically wants us. And that's fine. I'm happy for that. But I saw in growing up in a community like that, that was riven by this dispute. I saw the human face of this ideological divide. Either you go to work or you strike. Either you're on the left or you're on the right. And it may seem insignificant, but it wasn't. Like It destroyed families and friendships and even lives. People died as a result of this. So I'm sure that informs my unfashionable desire to sometimes go to humanize a Tory in this house or to go, what does Dominic Cummings want and what's he struggling with? It just comes from that. But your point about the past always being in dialogue with the present, I find very moving coming from that community. And, you know, it only took this horrible murder, which had nothing to do at all with politics, to expose those wounds and to bring the conflict of the minor strike so so back to the, the present. Nothing is worth the loss of life, but the, 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 the romantic playwright in me um, still gets moved by the idea that it took that to get some of these people back in the same, the same room again and to explore its um, heritage, including going back to storytelling and narratives. The thing that's always just bugged me about coming from a former mining town is that language being defined by something that you aren't anymore. And there's a speech in the last episode of Sherwood where Leslie Manville's character tries to express this, that everything or that even the language of how you identify yourself being a post-industrial nation coming from a former mining town, it might seem insignificant, but I don't believe that it is. Having grown up in a place that identified itself as being past something, not pre-something. We were identified by the thing that we weren't anymore. And I know that that is a factor, a psychological, spiritual factor in people's inability sometimes to get beyond the trauma of the past. That is such a good and important point. I was thinking about this and have, I think, written about this in relation to the weird obsession that, not weird, actually, the entirely understandable obsession that British politics has with the Second World War. Mm, yeah, post-war. And, and But yeah, post-war, but also the finest hour and 1941 mm. and standing alone, because there's the, in contained in the concept of the finest hour is you're never going to beat that. Yeah. Like that was, it's clearly like you've had your best, like you had your number one hit single. <laughs> it was the Battle of Britain mm. and everything else. It's like the later work. It's not so good. Oh, I, did, I don't like Britain's later albums. It's yeah. not, not going to be the early 1940s again. And that, and you felt that so strongly. Someone like Jacob Rees-Mogg is such a sort of incarnation of that sense of, well, yeah, clearly we're just a tribute act to the idea of Britain that we that we would like to be because we are a form of something. And I'm fascinated whether you think there are times, going back to right at the beginning of this conversation where we started about you know, times like 1968, times like 2016, where there's something about the sort of the Bunsen burner under politics getting going to the blue flame and it all getting a bit hotter, whether that draws in the past in a different way. And that's what makes... You get these times when suddenly present politics frog marches the past into the present and recruits it as part of the argument. And Brexit did that with all sorts of things. Uh, and, and I mean, I don't know whether that was present in your mind with Sherwood, but suddenly it became 
almost more necessary to to go back to the early 1980s and and have some of that in the present does that make any sense at all definitely no it makes that's exactly that's the moment i think we're living in and as a citizen i find it horrifying and upsetting and scary but as a playwright and a dramatist i'm vaguely aware that there was a window of time i think i said the the gramsci quote earlier um the new world the old world not quite dead but the new world not yet born we are in this interregnum which we can't seem to get out of which is dangerous and and confusing and upsetting and i think what we are doing is waiting for a talented storyteller to come along and give us a new story but in the absence of that doesn't the devil have the best tunes? That's literally what you do. I mean, that is, that is the, the challenge in Best of Enemies, isn't it? That, you know. Without a doubt. So, so, so yeah. Uh, so, so in this moment, it's the, it's the devil who is, is, um, is more inspiring and impactful. And that's really, really frightening. To your previous point, the joy of um, storytelling and drama that takes us back to an equivalent past is that it reminds us that it is possible to, to reset and you're not always losing. And, you know, there are, there are moments, there are moments recent in recent modern history I, I would say that 97 was a moment whether you're on the left or on the right whether you like labor or you, the conservatives everyone has to agree that that felt like a moment that was a reset and there was optimism and it felt like we were unshackling ourselves from the stuff you're talking about and beginning to write a new story the fact that that story may prove unsatisfying or flawed or broken once in six years time doesn't undermine the value of that reset and i i feel like at the moment this is a really really crap metaphor but do you know the film inception the chris nolan film about dreams I, i'm aware of it but i'm afraid i haven't actually seen it our, our listeners might well have done so but so, so don't let that stop you so this is going to be really unsatisfying but essentially the concept of that is that you can go into people's dreams and mess around with them but how you get out of the dream is you need a i think it's called a, a knock or a nudge like falling off your chair gets you out of it. You can go into the dream of someone who's dreaming. So you go down to different levels of um, consciousness. And the further you go down, it starts to get really dark and really weird. And I feel like that's where we, aha, we keep, because we keep pushing a button that isn't resetting, the button isn't working anymore. We keep descending down to different levels of unreality and it's getting really, really weird down here. And I don't know what it would take to push the button that will reset our um, reality. I thought it was going to be the pandemic. I no, that makes a lot of sense. No, that really is very interesting. And I know exactly what you mean, actually. No, I mean, not having seen the film, but I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, it, it's, I'm going to right. lurch off into deeply pretentious now. So podcast listeners who don't like that, listen, look away now or turn your ears away now. From a dramatist point of view, it's the, it's the, it's the play within the play. And then within the play, that sense of actually, you know, what are the, the layers of, of, you know, when you have a story within a story and you're just sort of, you're playing with the alienation yeah. that people have from what they're, what they're watching. And when you're talking about dreams, that actually the, the thing that first that pops into my head is, you know, it's Prospero and the Tempest. And we ask stuff that dreams are made of mm -hmm. that as a dramatist, you get to say, look, this is, I'm, I'm now going to describe the worldview. It's in this theatre. We're all sitting here. We know it's totally artificial, but also we're going to suspend that and we're going to be completely absorbed and have very, very real human responses to these people who we know yeah. are pretending and are reading lines that have been written by James Graham uh, or someone else. And it's almost as if, we're now everyone is so literate in the idea that politics is theatre and artifice mm. that we need to sort of strip that all the way completely and say, well, what is politics now beyond that? If 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 it's I'm not making any sense now. Help me out here. <laughs> You're going back to what we sort of said earlier, which is the anxiety, the existential anxiety I have about uh, narratives in an age when so much unreality exists. But um, I, I think 
the reason why I would constantly advocate for um, storytelling and the culture sector in this country, as much as it's being um, chipped away at, is exactly what you're saying. The human needs to make sense of something by framing it in a narrative. And and I, I feel like the way we receive information at the moment is so relentless that it doesn't make, there is no meaning to it. I, every single second, I'm getting a news update of something someone said or did. And it's impossible to find meaning into it because there's no structure. The joy of a play or a film, it steps back and goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, what was that? What does that tell us about ourselves? Why do we do that? What's that about? It's a bit like that feeling when you wake up in the morning after a really ridiculous argument at midnight in the pub with your friends and you know that you behaved irrationally and you said things you don't mean, and but they were just flailing passions and unreason, but it felt true at the time. But in the morning you go, I, I you text your mate and go, I'm so sorry, I just lost, I lost my mind. The problem with modern politics and the frame through which we see it is that we're basically always at midnight. We never get to the morning. We're always just screaming in the pub. And that's the value of storytelling. The storytelling is the morning where you go, what the hell happened there? Why are our systems doing this? Why do we behave that way? Why do I do that to you and you do that to me? And what can we do about it? So that's the value of storytelling. The fact that you're writing about historical events that people will know about this, the sort of the paradox that everyone knows how it ends. I mean, that's that was true of Shakespeare as well, actually. I mean, it's not like people didn't know that Richard III dies at the end, right? It's not like people, I wonder who's going to win the Wars of the Roses. You know, you know what happens. And yet something about the fact that it's preordained and you've gone into the theatre and actually knowing who wins the referendum somehow changes the way what it is you're expecting the drama to be definitely i mean yeah most successful movie of all time nearly is titanic and we definitely know what happens at the end <laughs> um so it's yeah it's a di- the, the proposition has to be different and what i really 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 enjoy and i'm glad it's that an audience seems to as well it's finding these more obscure pockets of history they're not the front of stage they're, 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 they're to the side of the stage they're adjacent to the main historical narrative everyone was looking this way but actually over to the left this weird thing was happening and that's literally the case with best of enemies history is really really happening very publicly on the streets of chicago and nixon being nominated to be the republican presidential candidate but over to the left over here in the dark corner of a studio i think is the real story uh two people are debating and the outcome of that is going to change news and therefore the nature of political discourse and conversation and to me that's really satisfying you're going audience i know you know about 1968 a, a bit of it but here's a different angle a different perspective on that from the side of the stage and it's those stories that i think are the most illuminating and it's such a great origin story because it captures this idea which i think is broadly true that essentially the liberal left won on culture ultimately and mm. the conservative right won on economics uh, and then that was the sort of the truce that prevailed more or less up until the mid nineties and Bill Clinton went the right way. Mm. No, we're not having, you know, we'll, we'll have culture as well, actually. <laughs> you know, I'm so fed up with you pot smoking, do- draft dodging, hippie liberals actually deciding and you know, in Hollywood deciding, you know, what the values are. Mm. No, piss off. We'll have that too. <laughs> and then, then the truce broke down. That's terribly, I mean, any Americans who understand history and culture listening, sorry about that. But there's a sort of a crude yeah. truth to that, isn't there? Yeah, I think so. Definitely. Yeah. And, um, 
Yeah, I have nothing to add to that. I think you, I think you summed up, you summed up the, the American moment very well. So that's probably a note more or less to finish on, except it is traditional on this podcast to try and be optimistic towards the end. And people can be optimistic literally about your output because there's going to be another series of Sherwood, isn't there? And tell us why, on top of that, you think there's grounds to actually feel optimistic and upbeat about where we are. It's tough, isn't it? But... I believe, and I would say this kind of very biased, but our capacity for imagination and storytelling means that we will be able to begin writing a new story eventually. History has proven that that is the case. And actually, I'm I'm exploring a play actually about the English football team and Gareth Southgate, which um, which may or may not happen. But in that. Uh, and I, yeah, I know you can overstate this and be a bit sentimental about it, but in in what he did for the English football team, he's a great storyteller. And he just he just decided, and he actually uses this language. He decided to write a new story for the English football team, and it may you know how well it's going. People can debate and discuss, but I think inherent in that. The power of the British imagination should give us hope that we will eventually start turning this corner. That is a fantastic note on which to finish. Come to think of it, this podcast is even in the episode we did with Satnam Sangera. We talked about what a great human being Gareth Southgate is uh, in relation to uh, your MP, actually, Lee Anderson, Mm. um, not wanting to take the knee. He's a character. Let's just leave it at that. Um, (laughs) uh, And I think in the episode with David Baddiel, we talked about Three Lines because, of course, he co-wrote that. So this is now becoming an unofficial theme of politics on the couch um sorry to interrupt but uh, without blaming david Baddiel, actually i do think even in that great piece of music which you described i do think there's something about the 30 years of hurt uh, narrative which is unhelpful it's not david Baddiel's fault <laughs> but again he's doing what we talked about in show what he's going until we until we solve this thing we can't move on and we have to move on without solving the thing we just have to but that's what makes it such a poignant piece of music and what made the special Christmas edition that referenced the women actually winning uh, a European championship. Uh, I thought they handled that very definitely, but we're now we've strayed way off our topic. So it just leaves me to say, James Graham, um, uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Hi, Phil the producer here. Since recording this episode, it's been officially announced that a play by James about the men's English football manager Gareth Southgate called Dear England will open at the National Theatre in June this year. Thanks once again for listening. Until next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.